As we start this uh, this series this morning, last week was kind of a hint toward it, kind of the, the end of our Acts series and the beginning of our Unity series. Uh, it's kind of a stepping stone since we had an extra week. But um, as we dive in, I couldn't help but think of uh, my friend Nate uh, Nathan. Uh, I, I don't see him much anymore, but there was a season of my life where he was one of my closest friends, um, which is only weird because Nathan and I are as opposite as you can come. We are diametrically opposed on almost everything. The first real conversation I ever had with Nathan um, uh, is he sat Esther and I down. We would not really ever talked. And he had invited us over. We came over thinking we were just meeting a new family. He sat us down at the table and said, so are you guys witches? <laughs> that, and it was a real question. Are you guys into witchcraft? <laughs> And uh, Esther and I have been into, like, herbs and natural um, remedies and things way back before it was cool. Like, back before there was a Whole Foods and before you could buy Echinacea at Price Chopper, we were, we were already into that kind of stuff. We've always um, kind of done um, natural things. Uh, and so word had gotten around this church that we took herbs. And so they assumed we were into witchcraft. What else could it possibly be? And so... Apparently, the whole church was talking about it, and Nathan was the only one bold enough to sit us down and go, what is the deal? Are you into witchcraft? And uh, was turned into be a, an awesome and hilarious um, conversation. But the second thing that um, kind of drew me to Nathan was in this very same first conversation, Nathan wanted us to know that we would not be friends for long. I just told us right off the bat. Um, he said, I'm, I'm forward and I'm blunt, and most people can't handle that. People don't hang around me long. Because I say it the way I, I mean it, and uh, I just don't keep friends for long. I always manage to make them mad, and they leave. So I'm just warning you up front. And so I went home determined, and I even prayed this, I'm going to love Nathan longer than anyone else has. Like, I'm going to stick by this guy no matter how big of a jerk he is. And I can tell you he did not make it easy. Um, it was difficult. I've never seen my wife more angry, like throwing things around the house angry like she was at this guy one night. But we stuck by him, and, uh, and we spent hours together debating the stupidest and most inane things. We disagreed on everything. If I sat up, he sat down, we would, we would debate on everything. And Nathan and Arena are still to this day some of our best friends. We don't get to see him much because we move south, but... We follow them on Facebook, and anytime we do get together, it's beautiful, and we love each other, and it's and it's awesome. And I think it's all because it started with him accusing me of being a witch, which I had never happened before. So, um, <laughs> so we'll touch on that a little bit more later. But we've officially wrapped up our summer series for 2021, um, titled "Acts Like a Christian," where we got to track with the early church from being this small group of spectators who were um, excited about the risen Jesus and ready and anxious to watch what he did next. Um, really not um, participants, but excited spectators. And we got to watch them move to being um, full participants in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Um, and through many changes and paradigm shifts, we watched them gain structure and diversity. Um, and all the way, we followed all the way to chapter 15, which serves as kind of the roots of the Gentile church. We talked about this for the last two weeks um, and left this kind of uh, Gentile-based church rooted and, uh, and primed and ready uh, for all the numerous changes and adaptations that eventually led to Open Table Community Church, um, where we are right now. On top of this, last week, um, in kind of a bonus week on Acts, we looked at the way the early church weathered a major theological um, conflict and maintained unity. This was not a small thing. This was a moment when some of the church were saying, you cannot be saved if you don't do this. This was a salvation issue that they were debating over. This was a big one. And they managed to come together as one church and discuss this major theological problem. And, uh, and, and maintain unity when they did it. They did it right. They got it right. Um, and then they managed to pull off something that their church has not done well since. We've not been great at that since Acts 15. And so um, having looked at a church that did it right, today we're going to go the other direction. We're going to look at a church that got it wrong. 
and it didn't do so good. This morning we're going to actually do kind of a survey-style look over, over the entire book of 1 Corinthians. It's, I'm going to cover a lot of scripture, and we're going to have to kind of bounce from chapter to chapter and move a little bit fast. Um, and I really don't have time to dig into any of these topics. I would love to do. But uh, I do want to look at the way Paul's desire for real unity um, informs and underlies this entire letter that he sends to this church. So we're going to dive right in. Um, right after some opening greetings, Paul kind of dives into his main issue with this church. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's house have told me about your quarrels. Dear brothers and sisters, some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I'm a follower of Apollos. Or I follow Peter. Or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. So Paul's very first complaint is about the way that they're beginning to divide up into factions and sects. Different groups. And though I don't have time to read the entire book, I do recommend that you go home and do that. And, uh, and, and we have such a tendency to, to divide books up into chapters and sections and verses that we, we rarely read a letter um, in its entirety like, a, like one thesis, which is the way it would have been written. It would have been written as a letter um, and, and, and held together um, way more than we generally hold them together. We have a tendency to break them up. So I recommend going home and reading First Corinthians. If you're looking for something to read this week, read First Corinthians and keep unity in mind. And see what happens as you read the book, um, assuming that's Paul's kind of primary thesis in this book. See what the book says to you. But after coming right out and telling the church the, the thing that he's been hearing about them and why it is clearly wrong, um, it, it feels for a second like Paul shifts gears. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness um, to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved is the very power of God. And this launches Paul into one of the most theological and often quoted sections of Scripture where he makes an argument for the power of the simple message of the gospel and how he came to Corinth preaching Christ and him crucified and nothing else. He didn't come with big, fancy, philosophical arguments. He came preaching Christ crucified. And it's easy to think that Paul has shifted gears away from this kind of minor behavioral annoyance called division and gotten into the real theological meat of the letter. Now he's really talking about the gospel. As we dive into chapter 2, this idea kind of holds for a second. Paul tells the Corinthians um, that he, he has been talking with more mature believers, and he's able to go deep with them. He's able to talk about meat. He, taught, he, he uses the metaphor of meat and milk. He's like, I'm able to talk about the deeper things of God with more mature pe- people, the mysterious things of God. And again, as you sink into kind of the theological realities in chapter 2, Go read them. They're they're deep. It's some deeper stuff. Some of Paul's richest theological writings are in this chapter. And you can forget that this started as an argument about unity in chapter 1, about division. And just as you start to go deep with Paul, he opens chapter 3 with the reason he's been kind of teasing these deeper realities. He said, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world, as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another, and you quarrel with each other, with one another. Doesn't that prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of this world. For when you say, I'm a follower of Paul, or I'm a follower of Apollos, aren't you acting like people of this world? After all, who's Apollos? Who's Paul? We are God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. This is so good. So, we don't often tie all of this together into one thought. But Paul is using this argument, I'm a Paul and Apollos, to hold this whole thing together. So what Paul basically saying is, I've heard you're divided, which makes no sense. I preached such a simple gospel when I came. And yes, I can go deeper. It goes deeper. We can definitely go deeper. But you're not ready for that because you're still dividing. That's the, that's, if you were to condense those three chapters, that's what you get. It's all one thought about division. He ends right where he started. 
And the thesis is very uncomfortable. If we're dividing, we're immature. That's the thesis. If you're dividing, you're clearly immature and not ready for anything deep. Which really hits weird in the church today. Because most new believers, when they come into the church, do not understand our divisions. They don't get it. They just love Jesus and they're excited to be here. They have to hang around a while and learn a little bit to figure out why we shun that other church. Why we don't like those people. You got The way we see it, you've got to get a little bit mature to get all that, to figure out why we don't like those people. Paul says, no, you got it backwards. If you're doing that, you're not mature yet. It's so ironic. Paul's thesis in the first three chapters is that the, the more deeper and complex reasons we come up with to divide, the more it proves we're not ready, yet we're still immature. And by the end of chapter 3, Paul really puts the hammer down on this theology uh, into what I think is one of the scariest passages in all of the Scripture. It reads like this. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit dwells in you? I actually put this verse in the New King James because that's the way most of us learn it. Some version of this, you are the, the temple of God. You are the temple of God. You are. And, and this, uh, uh, you know, this has been used to say this is why you shouldn't smoke or drink or, or eat too, much, too many desserts because you're the temple. Like, you've got to take care of the temple, right? We've all done this because you are the temple and you must care for the temple. Anybody ever heard that interpretation? Yeah, it's, it's fairly common. Which is ironic because in the Greek, um, that is not how this is written. It doesn't read this way at all. The Greek has a different word for the plural you than it does for the singular you. In English, we say you to mean you all, and we say it to mean you specifically. But in the Greek, it doesn't do that. It's two different words. So the New, the new Living Translation gets it closer. It gets it better. It's the one we usually study out of. It goes like this. Do you realize, don't you realize you all together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? You all, plural, are the temple, singular, of God. Well, this changes the meaning quite a bit. Right? You all together are the singular temple of God. But the truly terrifying part is what Paul says immediately after that. Remember, we're still talking about this three-chapter-long diatribe on unity and division. And Paul says this, God will destroy anyone who destroys his temple. For God's temple is holy. And, and you all, I added the all, you all are that one temple. God will destroy anyone who takes apart his temple, who destroys his temple, which you all together are. That scare the crap out of anybody else? Sorry to use that word. So let's go back and make sure we're holding this together. Paul comes out of the gate uh, complaining about the fact that they're dividing. He hints towards some deeper, richer theologies that tells them they aren't ready for that, and they've proved it by dividing up into these groups, and he drops the hammer on them and says, God will destroy anybody who does not value the whole temple. Does that feel heavy to anybody else? Let's keep tracking. Just to make sure that we, uh, we know chapter 4 is a continuation of this thought, Paul opens it this way. So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. He's still talking about this same theme. He has not shifted. He goes down a few bunny trails, which those of us who like to talk understand. We understand bunny trails. But he's still talking about he and Apollos and the way that they're splitting up. To, he's like, no, 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 you've got this all wrong. Four chapters still on this one argument. And throughout the rest of chapter 4, uh, he continues this until the very end where he finally makes the transition away from this single thought. He says, uh, which do you choose? Should I come to you with a rod to punish you or should I come in love and a gentle spirit? He's so angry about this. He's, he's telling them, you know, you decide how you want this to go. He's still clearly agitated and threatening, honestly. But Paul does start uh, from here on to deal with other issues in the church. But the first four chapters, you have to understand, are one argument. It's all about unity and division. 
And so he finally shifts, uh, shifts gears a little bit here. I'm going to go a little bit quicker here because I kind of want to bounce um, more, but I, I do recommend you dig deeper. Um, in chapter 5, Paul talks about someone who's living a life of sin in the church. And not just living a life of sin, like proud of it. And the church is, is being um, totally cool with it. And, and it's kind of funny because it seems counterintuitive uh, considering how big Paul has been on unity for the entirety of the book up to this point. But Paul tells them the only right thing to do is to put this person out of the church, to kick them out of the church, um, which seems weirdly divisive considering everything Paul has just said. Except here's the deal. Paul makes it clear that the reason you kick this person out um, is for their own salvation. He says, then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that the sinful nature will be destroyed, but he himself will be saved in the day of the Lord's return. Um, uh, and, and this is absolutely the church's most profound and greatest punishment, excommunication. Um, it wasn't done often, uh, but Paul was like, it's the only thing you can do in this situation. Now, let me ask you, as you consider this um, as kind of the, the deep and lasting and soul-saving punishment to get kicked out, how well does that apply to the church today? I mean, what happens if we do that today? I think what happens is they basically flip off the church building as they drive away, and they find a new church. Like this, excommunication means nothing today. Excommunication only works in a unified church. It, it doesn't work more so divided. We just, we hop churches like it's nothing anyway. And so there is this, chapter 5 doesn't even apply if, if, in, in, a, in a church today because it has no teeth. In a highly individualistic and divided church, um, there's a church on every corner, and we've, uh, we've, we've also kind of reinforced this message that the gospel is, um, uh, is, for me, if it's just me and God, then I'm okay. You know, as long as I've got God, I'm all right, which is absolutely not biblically accurate. The one time a man without sin in a perfect world, a perfect environment, was alone with God, God said, this is not good. You cannot just have you and God and be okay. That is not the way we were created. God looked at that situation once. because it is not good for man to be alone. He needs people. So you simply cannot have chapter 5 if you don't have unity. Incidentally, we learn in 2 Corinthians, this is just for fun, 2 Corinthians, they followed through, they kicked this man out, and he repented. And Paul encourages them in 2 Corinthians, let him back in. This was the purpose. This is why we did this. Of course receive him back in. And, and so Paul's punishment in this situation actually worked for, the, for, for this guy's life. So in chapter 6, he moves on, um, and he's shocked to learn that, uh, that the Corinthians are suing each other. That they're, they're actually dividing over grievances to the point that they're going to secular court. And he's like... He doesn't understand this. Why wouldn't you just go to the elders of the church? Why on earth would you be so divided that you could go out and sue one another? Paul's actual theological advice is, wouldn't it be better just to suffer loss and, and take the hit rather than, rather than, than, uh, than divide with someone? His argument should be that you feel so connected as brothers and sisters that the idea of of winning at the expense of someone else shouldn't even exist because you're one. You're the same. Chapter 7, he takes this idea of unity to Christian marriage and not only does he forbid divorce, but he says the married person doesn't even have authority over their own body. They're so unified. They're so one. They don't even have authority. They're not two. They're one. Incidentally, early in my marriage, I thought that would be one of those awesome verses to fill up my wife in the bedroom. And, um, and I was proud of myself. And uh, she was like, yeah, well, I want that body that I have authority over to go take out the trash and do some dishes. And so that backfired on me real fast. In chapter 8, Paul deals with eating meat that's been offered up to an idol in, in a Roman marketplace. It was totally common before you would sell meat to do a perfunctory offering to an idol. And they were curious as to whether this was okay or not. If you remember, this is one of the issues they dealt with in the letter from Acts chapter 15. But after going to great lengths about how two different Christians can have um, uh, differing convictions on whether or not something is, is sin or not, and both be right, uh, he adds this, but you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. Even in telling us to obey our own consciences, 
Paul warns that you're still responsible for the people around you. Their spiritual well-being is still on you because you're one. In chapter 9, he reinforces that with stories from his own life. He says, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was uh, with those who follow the Jewish law, I lived too under the law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring Christ to those under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles, I do not follow the Jewish law. I, I, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share in their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find gra- common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. So basically, Paul is saying he doesn't fight for his own way. He doesn't fight to be right. Those around him are always on his mind. What's best for them? Sure, Paul could probably make awesome and profound biblical arguments for why his way is the right way. But why? Why would he do that? When your life is advancing a kingdom purpose, why would you fight over those things? Chapter 10, Paul can continues in this same line of reasoning about convictions and liberties. And this is his end-all conclusion. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Anyone ever heard this verse quoted? We use this one a lot. Um, Another popular one. It's another verse we use to say you shouldn't smoke cigarettes or drink beer. Um, It's a way of saying just because you can do it, doesn't mean it's good for you, right? That's the way we use this all the time. Just because you can doesn't mean it's beneficial. So don't eat that second piece of pie, right? Just because you can doesn't. Except listen to the very next verse. This is the very next verse Paul says. Don't be concerned about your own good, but the good of others. Paul isn't talking about things that are bad for your body. He's trying to get us to realize that we're, we're not supposed to think individualistically. He's like, just because you can do it doesn't mean it's going to help the kingdom. doesn't mean it's going to advance the cause of Christ. It doesn't mean it's going to build better relationships in the body. We are part of a body. We're part of a temple, and God destroys anyone who destroys that temple. In chapter 11, Paul uh, talks about some stuff going on in the church that applied particularly to Corinth, specifically whether or not women should wear burqas. Basically, Paul's entire argument is based on this. Among the Lord's people, women are not independent from men, and men are not independent from women. For although the first woman came from man, every other man came from a woman, and everything comes from God. Whatever you decide concerning this particular issue, it's based on the fact that they are all one temple. They're not independent from each other. You can't think just for yourself and what's good for you. In the second half of the chapter, Paul starts dealing with the way they're celebrating communion. If you want to go deeper in this, we preached on this earlier this year. You can look it up. But he says, first, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. So not just theological divisions, but when they come together for church, they're dividing up. They're, they're meeting in, in cliques. After pointing out the, the way the, the privileged are eating first, because they used to do communion as a meal and the, the rich were seated better and they got to eat first and some people were coming and not getting to eat at all. The poor were being kind of left out. They weren't living as one. Paul kind of rips them a new one. It's a, it's a heavy passage. You should read it and read the whole thing. You've got to make sure you get the beginning and the end. He ends the chapter this way. So my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. Think about someone else for crying out loud. It's not about you. Then in chapter 12, there's this verse where we generally talk about the, how Paul is highlighting the spiritual gifts. These gifts that have, that have really worked to divide the church. Is speaking in tongues okay or is it not okay? Is prophecy okay? Is it not okay? We've, this chapter that's been so divisive in our church that, that people have, have split over. And, and listen to the way it actually reads. It's a little bit long, but I want you to hear. This is how it actually reads. Now read it this time with the context of unity that's just kind of permeating this whole book. Now, listen to this. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of services, but it's the same Lord. 
God works in different ways, but it's the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. To, to one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another. To someone, the, the one Spirit gives gifts of healings. He gives another the power to perform miracles. To another, prophecy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. So another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages. While another is given the ability to interpret what he said. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes this gift. He alone decides which gift each person should have. This passage, when taken in context, is, is barely about the gifts. This is about the one Spirit, the oneness that connects all of us. Paul's point seems to be that we are all connected by the same Spirit and can't be divided. And then Paul d- dives into one of the most beautiful metaphors of the church. He likens us to a body with all different parts. To drive home um, his purpose for calling this metaphor, he says this, Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. That I can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. But don't we do that every day in the church? We look at another church and, and we judge the way that they've been gifted or used or, or moving. We're like, I don't need you. Like, I don't like that part of the body. I don't need you. And how different does this make the beautiful love chapter in, in chapter 13? Love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. Taken in the context of the whole book, it's so much richer and more beautiful. And still on the subject of spiritual gifts um, and kind of the preeminence of love in a unified church, Paul gets more specific in chapter 14 about uh, the use of gifts in, in a real meeting. And he, and he, he says, you, I wouldn't forbid any gifts, but you should focus on the ones that help everybody, that everybody can draw from. Specifically, he says, I'd rather see somebody prophesying to the whole church, speaking the truth of God to the whole church, rather than speaking in tongues. Because everybody can be blessed. He doesn't forbid any gifts, but he's like, why wouldn't we focus on the ones that everybody can take advantage of? Chapter 15, Paul talks about the end times and the resurrection and even the rapture. And, and he keeps saying, you, you will be coming. You, and he uses the plural you every time. This thing that we think of so individualistically, like going to heaven or... Uh, Paul talks about it in, in the corporate sense. That this is a you thing. This is a corporate thing. This is a thing we will all do together and be a part of. That you can't divide. Then in chapter 16, Paul discusses an offering that, that the Corinthian church is supposed to be taking for another church in Jerusalem that's struggling. Because the idea of two different local churches really being two different things does not exist. If one church is struggling, it is the other, every other church's job to, to help because you're all one church. Period. And Paul finally closes out with some postscript stuff. And I know I've read a lot of scripture and covered way too much ground to do any real deep theological work, but I hope you see that this entire letter stresses and depends on a single thing. There is, there's a reason Paul opens this letter really frustrated that they're dividing. There is no way the rest of this letter works if you don't hold the church together in unity. The whole church depends, the whole letter depends on it. None of this is applicable in a real way. Now, we can pull pieces out and, and, and kind of pull them out of context and say, yeah, this is a really powerful verse. But you cannot hold this letter together in context unless you hold a strong view of, of church unity, biblical unity. One the rest of the letter is meaningless outside that context. And it indicates that we're far too, too immature for the book if we don't. So the bad news is um, that not very far into church history, uh, the church was already beginning down a road of division. Uh, and, and as we can see today, that, that dangerous and evil bug got in. And, and it, it's kind of defined the church ever since. It's almost what it means to be a Christian today. I looked it up. Islam has two main divisions. Some people stretch it as far as five. Five denominations in Islam. Modern day Judaism has four. Four denominations. 
Some sources have Christianity at 45,000. Some have us at only 40,000. Christianity Today did a deep investigative dive. They only came up with 33,830 different denominations, established denominations in Christianity. And if you do not believe that is our enemy's number one attack on the church, the sin of division, then I think maybe you have blinders on. But the good news is, Paul doesn't just attack the Corinthian church for the way they were dividing. He gave us some great clues as to what real biblical unity is supposed to look like. And we're just going to look at a few because we don't have a, a lot of time and we certainly can't read the entire letter, even though it shows up all throughout. But the, the first four chapters of the letter, Paul keeps bringing up the way the church was, was associating themselves with a particular leader, a celebrity. They, they had this celebrity leader that they kind of gravitated toward. I'm from Paul. I'm from Apollos. I'm from Peter, who's Cephas. And my favorite argument in this theme is this. When one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I'm a follower of Apollos, aren't you acting like people of the world? After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We're just God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So first of all, let me, let me please say this. If you resonate with things here at OTCC, if, if you feel like I'm saying things that you agree with um, and, and you wish more people would hear it and you feel the urge to go out into the world and talk about some of these things, let me ask you one favor. Say, in my church we say, or say, I believe X, Y, Z, or say, I've heard it said, blah, blah, but please don't say Pastor Chris says. That's gross. And I do not want to be put on a pedestal like that. In fact, if you disagree with me and you want to debate me, you can name me all day long. You can use my name as much as you want. But please do not put me on some kind of pedestal like what I have to say means anything. Who, who is Chris? I'm with Paul. Who in, on earth is Chris? If I've convinced you of something biblically as we study together, then that's now yours. I don't believe in plagiarism when it comes to the scripture. You can have it. It's yours. Quote it as you saying it. Because I don't understand um, why anybody would say, yeah, but Pastor Chris says, ooh, no. Pastor Chris is nobody but a fellow student with you. I, I have no authority other than to study the scripture with you. So Paul said, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? And those are very, very true words. Who on earth is Chris? But the real thing I want to look at here is the way that Paul doesn't even argue who's better or who's more worthy or who's more gifted or who should be followed. What Paul does, he recognizes the different roles they had. I planted seed in your heart. Apollos watered it. In other words, why on earth would you identify yourself with one over the other? We were both just doing our jobs. Two jobs that really needed to be done. We've got a couple more. Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is a rule for all the churches. For instance, a man who is circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. A man who is uncircumcised, I have no idea how you reverse the circumcision. No clue. I don't even want to know. Because everything I can come up with is horrible. Anyway, ADD moment. And the man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be circumcised now. For it makes no difference whether or not a man is circumcised. The important thing is he keeps God's commandments. Yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Paul goes on to apply this to several situations, from marriage to slavery. And aren't those the same thing, really? <laughs> I'm kidding. I can do that because my wife's not here to throw things at me. She's joining online, so I can... Judy, no, it's okay. <laughs> Uh, but honestly, how many of you have ever been to a church where you feel like the immediate pressure to, to fit in? When it takes you about three seconds to look around the room and go, oh, okay, this is one of those churches. I know how to act here. I know exactly who to be if I want to be accepted here. Paul's advice seems to be, stay you. And we're not talking about sin. Of course, the Holy Spirit's going to work on sin issues. He's going to, that's, that's the Holy Spirit's job in you. 
But you don't walk in and go, oh, I have to act a certain way to be here. I have to... Paul's like, no, no, no. Say who you are. Who you are is important. Who you are when God saves you, that, that, those gifts, those talents, those, the, the skill set, that personality is important. Hang on to that. Be you. Don't conform to a mold. And maybe the quintessential passage to offer Paul's prescription for real unities in chapter 12. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. We've all been baptized into one body and one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm part of the body, uh, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make him less part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would you make it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But the body has many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it was only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can never say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts that we regard with less honor, and those that are clothed with the greatest care, so we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen while the more honorable parts do not require the special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to these parts and less, that have less dignity. Uh, this makes for harmony among the members so that all the members can care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. This doesn't even need commentary. That's about as plain as you can put it. The only way to grasp unity is through diversity. That's, our, that's Paul's main point here. The only way to stay unified is to understand you're different, and that that is a net gain. Which sounds cool on a t-shirt. You know, unity through diversity. That makes a great t-shirt. I feel like we need to, to bring it into the real world or it's going to stay stuck in abstraction. So let's start with this. The more variety that exists, the more likely we're part of the whole body. The more variety that exists, the more likely we're making up a full body. If you find yourself agreeing with everyone in your circle... If the people you love and care about uh, and, and think about the most pretty much mostly agree with you on everything, chances are you are embracing division, which is a little spooky. If you see eye to eye and mostly get along with everybody you're in close relationship with, then you are all probably a bunch of fingers that make a great hand, but not part of the whole body. Especially if you're pretending like the liver is an enemy. Because it doesn't act like a finger. Second, the kingdom of God is not uh, advanced properly without that church over there or those people over there or that denomination over there that you disagree with. The church cannot function properly without them. If you're, if you're a kidney and you're a great kidney and you're doing everything a kidney is supposed to do and you're functioning perfectly as a kidney, you can do your job, it seems, without a foot. Who needs a foot to be a kidney? Until you need something to carry the body over to the faucet so you can drink water so you can keep working as a kidney. A kidney sitting here and completely immobile doesn't get to be a kidney for long. It needs the mobility given by the rest of the body to function properly. It may not feel like you need that church over there, but you need that church over there. The kingdom of God cannot function properly without all of its parts. Anybody else getting uncomfortable? And finally, let me throw this in. 
many of the functions of the body require opposite pressures. Only one leg makes mobility difficult. And, it, and it, it's just hopping. <laughs> what you wind up with. In fact, if you have two legs, but they function exactly the same, they work exactly the same as each other, you're still hopping. What it takes is two legs working against each other to walk, to move properly. One leg has to be contracting while the other one is, is extending and vice versa. And they have to move almost exactly the opposite as, of one another in order for the body to function properly. The brain has two hemispheres which don't get along with each other hardly at all, and it requires both to be a fully functioning brain. Depth perception happens because we have two eyes that see differently. We can hear the direction things come from because we have two ears that function independently of each other going two different directions. A lot of times for the body to work right, things have to pull against each other just right. In fact, I think when you look at the history of our country, this is clear. Most of, the, most of the, the huge, awesome advancements in our country happened because there was a progressive force saying we have to do better. Ending slavery, women's rights to vote, labor protection. This was believers who wanted to progress and see society do better and advance. At the same time, the conservative force in our country is responsible for maintaining any roots and moral anchor our nation has had, from fighting filth on television to preaching the sanctity of human marriage and, and, and protecting the unborn. If we didn't have a conserving force pulling back the reins, I mean, do a deep dive on the 70s. Holy moly. If the conserving force didn't rein things in, who knows where we wind up? If we don't have a progressive force pushing us to do better and change and think about other people, where would our country be? And if we don't have a conserving force, where would our country be? We need both pressures. And that makes a lot of us really, really uncomfortable. Two forces pulling against each other allows our country to move forward and advance without abandoning our roots, but without staying stuck right where we are. And that hurts to admit, honestly. But we need both forces pulling against each other. It's no different in the church. So not only do we need variety, we need every part, even the ones that it doesn't seem like we need. But it's really important that some of us are opposite of each other. And all this is, is why this is such an important message right now. Our world claims to be advancing unity and acceptance and tolerance while cancel culture becomes the most prominent force on both sides of the debate. We silence the other side and we call it inclusion. And that is what's happening in the world right now. And, and the church has to stand against it. Or, in the church, what we do is we just split into another church or a den another denomination, and since that little group is getting along with itself, we call it unity, while silencing all of the other debates. We call it one body. And I can go on and on, but the important thing is real unity, which every theological and practical truth in 1 Corinthians depends on, Real unity. Real unity is found in embracing our deep and real diversity. So how do we respond to this? In chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, when Paul is about to really tear into the church for how divisive they're being during communion, he starts like this. But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you can have God's approval, uh, so that God's approval will be recognized. Basically, it sounds like Paul is saying, I'm really angry to hear that there are divisions, but of course, there has to be divisions. And that can sound confusing. 
in English, but it's not that way in the Greek. The Greek actually reads like this. First, I hear that there are schisma among you, schisms, when you meet together as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be heresies among you. So that, you can, so that God's approval can be recognized. Those are two different Greek words. I don't know why on earth in English we made them both division. That just seems unnecessarily confusing. Not the same word in Greek. I'm angry that there's schisms. But of course there will be heresies. Paul completely understands heresies and, and in a weird way welcomes them. Because the learning process requires that we get it wrong sometimes. That's going to happen. Yes, we are absolutely going to get our theological understandings wrong sometimes. And there's nothing scary about that. The thing that angers Paul is the schisms. That we'll divide over it. That we would divide over a heresy. Doesn't that seem weird to say today? Because right now, heresies are the devil. I guess we, that's the only reason to divide, right? Is if somebody has a heresy. If somebody believes something wrong, that's why we divide from them. Paul says, no, 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 heresies have to happen. That's how we learn. We get it wrong until we study and get it right. If you divide every time that happens, what do you wind up with? 33,830 denominations is what you wind up with. This is what unity looks like. It's refusing to divide. Even when you disagree and one of you is wrong. One of you is actually wrong. One of you is in heresy. Paul says, no, still not okay to divide. The only way that we do that is to gain that diversity is a net positive. When God made up the universe with his words and he declared each phase of it to be good all by itself. I did this and it was good. He made this and it was good. Then he used his own hands to make a person. And he put that person with no sin and brokenness in a world God looked at that man and he said, this is not good. You need more. This is, this is wrong. So what God does, he makes Eve. And the interesting thing is he didn't make another Adam. He had the DNA there. He could have just cloned Adam with the same DNA, but he doesn't. Instead, God makes a completely different creature. <laughs> Very different physically, which is awesome but also very different mentally and emotionally, which is not always so awesome. But God, to make human existence good, created diversity. And here's what the Bible says about it. So God created human beings, plural, in his own image, singular. The image of God, singular, he created them, plural. Male and female, he created them. If I'm reading that right, it's saying that it takes humanity and all of its complexity and diversity to properly reflect the singular image of God. He made them, plural, in His singular image. And those of us who believe in a triune God, a single God who exists in three distinct, distinctive and different purposes, per, persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it makes perfect sense that no one person could image God could image a triune God individualistically. But the core of the message of unity is found in the very nature of God itself. And it has to start and end there. When Jesus prayed for unity, a prayer that we're going to dig into in this series, he prayed, I pray that they will be one just like you and I are one. Our unity is dependent upon and bears the image of the unity of the Trinity. One of the foundational truths of the Trinity is the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, the Holy Spirit is not the Son, that there is differences and yet one God. I think this is important because I also believe the only way we have any hope of a, of a, of a cheating unity is to ever draw closer to the God of unity. When we are scattered all over by theology and practice and liturgy, every single time you try to draw close to one group, you're also pulling further away from another. Like, to try and fix unity by drawing closer to one another never works. 
Unity can only begin to be possible as we all draw closer to Christ together. Because here's the thing. As you draw closer to the cross, and someone else is drawing closer to the cross, you are also drawing closer to one another. That has to be where it starts. So here's how I'd love to respond to this message. We, we sang a lot of songs this morning just about the, the centrality of God and the, the greatness of God and to put God front and center. So we're actually going to sing that last song again as, as we come to the table because here's the deal. Here's the power of this unity message is that this life is about that short. That has been brought back to my reality recently again. And then comes eternity where you get to spend eternity with people that you're spending life shunning. Spending life saying, not that church, not that belief system, not that denomination, not those people. You get to spend eternity with them. This life is that long. I love that line, that last song. If this is a glimpse of heaven, I can get used to it. Which bears the question, can you get used to it? So as we sing that song, as we gather around the table, I want you to do two things. First, fix your heart on God's presence. Focus hard on God and, and, and His promise that when we gather together like that, He's in our midst. That's very important. Focus on that, on the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then I want you to do this. Think about a person or a church or a denomination that you greatly disagree with. Maybe a church that hurt you. Maybe it's a celebrity church on TV, whatever. Just one of those churches that drives you batty. I want you to think about the fact that that church spent time this morning drawing close to Jesus, worshiping Jesus, declaring Jesus, preaching Jesus trying to draw people closer to Jesus. If you are moving closer to Jesus, you will be moving closer to that church, to that person, to that denomination. And here's the kicker. In a very genuine way, in your heart, thank God for that church. You don't have to pray for them. You don't have to pray for their, for their advancement. We're not ready to go that deep yet. But thank God that they're there. Because that's your body. Those are your people. Whether we get it or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether we have any clue why they're there or not, God has put them there to declare the cross of Christ. And when we draw close to them, we draw close to Christ. And when we draw close to Christ, we draw close to them.